0: Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Well, uh, it's nice to be back here in Fullwood. I was here maybe seven or eight years ago, I think, uh, maybe longer when Hugh Palmer was here. So it's nice to be uh, back here and see some familiar faces. Now, in her beautiful prayer just a few moments ago, I don't know if you are following carefully and you picked this up, but Lucy Rogers uh, quoted uh, a verse from the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk towards the end of her prayer when she referred to the fact that the the glory of the Lord shall be known along the face of the whole earth as the waters cover the sea. And uh, to some extent, to some considerable extent, that prayer has been substantially answered in the last 20, 25 years as the gospel of Christ has spread around the world. Certainly from an historical perspective, um, church historians could very easily argue that the last 20 years or so, since 1989 principally, have been amongst the most remarkable in the history of the church since the first century. In fact, there's been unprecedented expansion of the Church of Christ uh, all across the globe in that 22 year period. We maybe haven't seen it so readily in the UK and in Europe as a whole, as we referred to earlier. Europe, I think, is probably the hardest continent in the world uh, in which to work at the moment. But on a global scale, there has been remarkable church growth and the expansion of the Church of Christ. And this morning in this first service, what I'd like to do is to try to give you a brief overview of something of what God has been doing these last 25 years. Uh, I'll be speaking on a different theme in the second service, but for this morning, uh, I'd like to try to give you an overview of how the gospel has spread around the world since the uh, remarkable political changes occasioned by the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. The evangelical church, church that stands on the authority of the scriptures, was probably no more than about uh, 10 million at the beginning of 1900. It's at least 300 million people around the world today. And since 1989, there's been very rapid expansion of the church in countries where there was no church. Mongolia would be an example. Again, Lucy prayed for Andrew Johnson, I think it was. Uh, uh, in her prayer and for the financial deficit and challenges uh, in Latin link with whom he's working. His uncle Gordon uh, lives in Oxford and travels regularly. He was a professor in um, uh, eye surgery, I think in London uh, University Hospital. He travels regularly to Mongolia each summer to uh, train people and also to um, heal people from some of their eye diseases. And I think that's because he met a Mongolian student or he taught one in London University. Well, in 1989, there were only six known Mongolian Christians in the world, six. Most of them had become Christians either through studying in the summer period uh, in Eastern Europe. In fact, we used to take teams to Hungary to reach Mongolians in the summer in the 1980s. That was the only way we could get to them. Uh, But some were converted through listening to radio broadcasts in Russian, a second language. Today, there are at least 150 churches uh, in Mongolia. There's been rapid expansion of the church for the first time in history in the last 22 years. Another country not so far away would be Nepal, one of the most remarkable stories of the last 50 years. The first missionaries went to Nepal in 1954, around about the time I was born, and uh, a small church began soon after. By 1990, 1991, there were about 30,000 known Christians in the country. I was at a large conference in Cape Town in South Africa 18 months ago, and I met a Nepali church leader there. And I said, I've heard about the spectacular growth of the church in Nepal. And I said, I'm quoting the figure of 300,000 believers. Am I accurate as opposed to 30,000 20 years ago? He said, you can triple that. It's at least 900,000 believers in the country at the moment. And I said, well, how did the church grow so rapidly from 1990, 1991 onwards? And he said, well, it's God's timing for our country. But he said, at that time, uh, the government put a lot of the pastors in prison. So the ordinary believers in the churches had to share the gospel, and the word spread as they gossiped the gospel. And I said, well, what do you do to try to reach people? And he said, well, in our church at least, uh, we don't have open-air meetings or distribute literature and so on. We just open the windows and open the doors. We sing songs and people come in. It's God's timing for Nepal. If you move to Africa, even to somewhere like Algeria, the area of the world where the great St. Augustine came from, uh, where the number of believers was in the hundreds just 20 years ago, I hesitate always to use the word revival, but there is something special going on in Algeria where there are perhaps 80,000 known Christians today, whereas there were just a couple of thousand 20 years ago. There's a remarkable work of God going on, and the believers, there are very bold. Just two years ago, I was meeting with two of them uh, in a hotel in Tunisia, planning for this conference and for some of them coming to South Africa, and uh, the phone went... uh, the one of the men there was the pastor of the church or the senior elder. It was his wife. She said, "I think you'd better come home quickly." The two other elders were taken in by the secret police last night, and uh, so he, he excused himself. He travelled back to Algeria the same day. Then he sent me an email uh, subsequently and said that the secret police had called him in and said, "If you Christians don't stop turning the country upside down and sharing your faith, we'll imprison you all." And he said, "I laughed and said." You can't. You don't have 80,000 places in prison for all of us. You could have imprisoned us all 20 years ago, but now we are too numerous and there's nothing much you can do about it. So these are just some illustrations of the expansion of the church just in the last 20 years. I could go on to speak about China, where the government talks about there being over 100 million Christians. Certainly Tony Lambert, a careful statistician working for OMF says there are probably eighty million evangelical Christians in China. There are 1.3 evangelical Christians million evangelical Christians in the UK. China's only rivaled in terms of the number of Bible believing Christians, probably by the USA. And I wonder if I were to ask you what you think are the five countries with the largest number of evangelical Christians in the world, what you would say. Well, they are China and the US, Nigeria. Uh, Brazil, and probably India. I was in Nigeria just a few years ago and uh, asked um, a student in a conference there where there were 7,000 students gathered together for a missions conference in Nigeria Um, what was happening to some of these students. He said, Lindsay, 20 years ago, we had 4,000 European missionaries in Nigeria and we had 400 Nigerians in Europe. Today, we have 4,000 Nigerians in Europe and we have 400 Europeans working in Nigeria. He said there's been a big shift. So now more than half the missionary force around the world come from the non-Western world. So these are all indicators of how the gospel has spread, how the church has become much more international, and the Rogers could speak of what God has been doing in Central Asia during the time that they have also been involved there in some of the Stan, so-called Stan countries. So we've seen remarkable growth alongside that some increasing restriction and persecution also. Now, I mentioned those illustrations, that brief overview, because I'm coming to the text that I want to speak from, which is where Paul says in Colossians chapter 4, verse three. verse 3, Pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Paul asks those local believers to pray that God will open doors. And we know from Scripture that it's only God that can open doors into countries and open the door into people's hearts. There's that beautiful verse in the Acts of the Apostles where it speaks of God opening the heart of one lady who was a seller of purple so that she might receive the gospel. And this morning, the exhortation I want to bring is that as a congregation— you pray specifically for God to open doors into some of the tougher countries or the tougher people groups where there's very little Christian presence, and maybe that as a congregation you be more specifically responsive to those unreached groups, not just praying that God will open the doors, but that some people will even go there to take the gospel to those situations. But also that God may open doors in our own cultural context, in Sheffield, in our families where perhaps we may be the only believer or we may have parents or children who are not yet believers and have been resistant for years if not decades that we take Paul's exhortation here and learn from the history of the church to pray that God will open the door of the hearts of our families, neighbors, and friends. Well, how is it that God has opened doors over the last 25 years? I'd like just to focus on two ways This has happened. The sovereign intervention of God in history and the courage of God's people in going through the doors as they're opened. As one person said, without God we cannot, without us he will not. And there is this creative tension in the Bible whereby doors will not open unless God opens the doors. But as the door is open, we have a responsibility not to just sit passively, but to courageously seize the opportunities to speak and live deliberately for Christ and, if need be, for some of us to go into those situations. First, let's look at God sovereignly opening doors. I already referred to the changes in Eastern Europe and touched briefly on the situation in Albania. There are probably 10,000 Albanian Christians living in Albania today. There were only two known Albanian Christians in 1990. They were both ladies over 70 years of age. The state under Enver Hoxha, the president, had basically uh, erased any uh, spiritual life in the country. Actually, it was the only country in the world which had in its constitution the statement that it was atheist. The Russians didn't, neither did the Chinese, because they always tried to give the impression that they allowed religious freedom. There was none of that sham in Albania. They stated in their constitution, we're an atheist state. And in the 1970s and 80s, for those who can look back that far, the only time, the only way you could get into Albania was uh, via a package tour from the Isle of Wight. One was over Easter weekend and one was over Christmas. And some girls, two girls actually, from our youth group in Merthyr Tidville, where I grew up, They went on one of these package tours over Easter weekend. And on Easter Sunday morning, they were taken to the Atheist Museum of Tirana, which was in a disused church. You see what the Albanians were doing. They turned the church building into the Museum of Atheism. And they said, here's a Bible. Nobody reads it anymore because we have the sayings of Enver Hoxha, our great leader. Here's a prayer book. Nobody prays because we just go to the state to ask them for help. We don't need any of these things. No one believes there's a God who is there in our country anymore. This was on Easter Sunday morning. Then a few years later, when their president died, the situation opened up. And that's how the student movement began, remarkably. There was a small group of students. Some people I know are not very keen on short-term programs. But one small group of students went from a Presbyterian church in Seattle on an overnight flight. They were going to Belgrade in Yugoslavia in the early 1990s. Uh, Just for six weeks' summer program. They flew overnight to Athens where they would change planes. And when they arrived in Athens, they saw on the television screen in the airport that fighting had broken out in Yugoslavia. Civil war had started. And there were riots on the street in Belgrade. So they phoned back to their missions pastor and said, It looks pretty risky to go to Albania now. There's fighting on the streets. What shall we do? He said, Don't go there, go to Albania instead. Because the president has just died. People are milling around on the streets. This chaos. Go to the university. Offer some courses in English language. And uh, use the Bible as your text and see what happens. And they said, where's Albania? He said, well, just look further down the map. It's just a bit further south than what was Yugoslavia at the time. Catch the first plane to Tirana and go to the university. They did that. They spent six weeks there. They taught English using the Bible as their text. Quite a number of people came along. And ten students professed faith. One of them was a guy called Zef Nikola. He came on the Oxford mission with me three years ago. He was a linguist, brilliant linguist, and he became the general secretary of the student movement, the president of the Evangelical Alliance, and is an elder in a church in the capital, Tirana. About five years ago, he realized there wasn't a good translation of the Bible into the Albanian language. So being a linguist, he took a year off his work learned New Testament Greek in one year and then translated the whole of the New Testament into the Greek, into the Albanian language and it's available today in modern Albanian. All that started from a summer program. Now I know some older missionaries are not too keen on these summer programs but there are occasions when God who is gracious and often has a bigger heart than us and often is more creative than we are, he sometimes uses these events and these humble efforts to bring about the birth of something special. Well, that's how the situation in Albania has grown and how the church has expanded. And now they're sending missions out to other neighboring countries, even to Turkey and uh, other places in this new young church. Now, what's the lesson that we learned from that? It's that often behind changing, sometimes traumatic political circumstances, God can be at work preparing to open doors. We also see that nothing is impossible to God. Some countries might seem like a closed book. The door is shut, insurmountable, impassable. And yet as God hears our prayers, so he answers and opens doors. And sometimes it's surprising what he's doing by the Holy Spirit quietly behind the scenes. I was in Russia just a few months ago talking with some of the Russian church leaders and I said to them, how many uh, believers do you think there are in Russia today uh, in the churches? And they said maybe 800,000. I said, how many were there in 89? They said, probably not more than 80,000. The Western church overestimated the number of believers here. And I said, well, how did the church grow from 80,000 to 800,000? They said, let us tell you a story. They said, under Stalin, many Ukrainians were forcibly relocated to live against their will in Russia. Many of them were very poor. They had to learn the Russian language and live here for decades. And sometimes during those 70 years of oppression, we wondered, what, what is God doing? But they said there was a large church in, in the Ukraine. Half all the believers in the former Soviet Union were Ukrainians. As these people were forcibly moved to Russia, there were believers amongst them. When the situation opened up in 1990-91, most of the churches planted in the last 15 years were planted by these same Ukrainians whose families were forcibly moved under Stalin to come and live in Russia. They said we had many Western missionaries, many Western, especially American evangelists, come and lead big efforts. But actually the main reason we see, the main means that God used of planting and extending the church across Russia the last 20 years has been the very Ukrainians who were forcibly moved against their will to come and live in Russia. So we wondered, and our forefathers wondered all those years, what is God doing? And we see that, just like Joseph said, as it were, you or Stalin meant it for evil, but God turned it to good. So sometimes we can see traumatic events occurring along the political landscape of a nation, and yet the Holy Spirit can be working subtly, gently, relentlessly behind the scenes to create openings for the advance of the gospel. And the question we have to ask ourselves when we see these situations occurring is, how now should we live given that God has allowed us to be placed in this situation? Often Christians ask the wrong question when they're faced by adversity or difficulty. So many immature Christians ask the question, why is God allowing this to happen to me? wrong question. The question of the mature Christian is, given that God is allowing this to happen to me, how then should I live and speak like a shining star so that the gospel of Christ could be advanced? Let me give you another illustration of that from Sudan. There was a civil war there for 20 years. In 1994, the, country, the government in the north, which was Islamic, uh, took the capital city in the south, Juba. They forcibly moved all the students to the north to Khartoum where they were forced to speak and study in Arabic and live under Sharia law. But amongst the students who were forcibly moved to the north were many believers. They took the gospel with them. They were unusual missionaries. They started student groups. Within three years, they were having 1,300 students coming to the annual conference. Some were even bringing their parents. Uh, the head of Shell came, in the com- uh, came to the conference. Some people running the oil industry in the, in the country came, even uh, some generals from the army. In fact, they were planning to have 600 in one conference, and when 1,700 turned up, they said, we don't have enough food, you'll have to share three to each plate for the whole duration of the conference. Imagine that happening in a British conference. Anyway, that's what they did. You see, what happened was rather like Daniel in the Old Testament. Remember, he and his friends were forcibly moved from their home country to live under... Nebuchadnezzar, and uh, they retained their, their witness there and their faithfulness to the God of the Jews and the God uh, of the Bible. But what is intriguing when you read Daniel chapter 1 is it says they were forced to learn and study in the conqueror's language and to study the literature of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's people. It's one thing to be forcibly moved from your culture. It's another thing to be forced to learn the literature of the conquerors and work in the language of the conquerors. It's a double humiliation. This is what happened to the Sudanese, but they realized their deeper identity was being in Christ, so they shared the gospel, and a student movement blossomed in Sudan. The key lesson, again, we learn from there is that if we are facing adversity, often God, who is sovereign over our lives, if we do not believe in the sovereignty of God, over our lives, we will be in deep trouble when we face adversity. I often say to students, it's really important when you're an undergraduate to come to a clear understanding of who the God is that you worship. And in my experience, it's really important you understand God is sovereign, God is good, and God is gracious. The three things. If you're not clear on that when adversity comes, you'll really be in trouble because you won't believe that God is in control, you'll think you're governed by chance. If you don't believe God is good, you become anguished. And if you don't draw on God's grace, then you'll you'll feel as if you're left to yourself or the heavens are as brass and God is far off. It's very important to believe all three things about God's character. I believe those things many years ago when our only daughter died. And then they became a reality, an existential reality as we saw in our circumstances, that even though we didn't understand this was happening, we knew that God was sovereignly in control, that he was a good God, and that he would give us grace in those difficult circumstances. And in the goodness of God, we don't understand why that happened, but he turned that family tragedy to the advance of the gospel, because the day after my daughter died, my father asked to see me and said, Your mother and I want to be baptized. I was the first believer in my family. This was 20 years after I'd become a Christian. And my father said, um, I said to my father, well, you need to become a Christian before you're baptized. He was 65 and a businessman. He said, I've arranged to be baptized next month with your mother, and I want you to speak. And I said, well, um, why are you telling me today? And he said, it's because I can see you've got hope in the face of loss and adversity, which I have not had. And I said, why has it taken you so long? I said, I've been a Christian for 20 years. He said, didn't you realize? I was watching you all the time for 20 years. I had to see that it was real in the midst of adversity. And it's only when I see how you as a Christian stand firm in the midst of adversity, I can see it's true. He said, son, you have to realize I'm 33 years older than you. I've seen a lot of men who were businessmen who said they were Christians whose testimony wasn't faithful and wasn't true. It's very hard for an older man to tell his son he's found something before him. And therefore, it's when I see you in the midst of adversity that I see this gospel as something beyond what I have in my own strength. I'm reminded of the words of John Wimber, the famous American evangelist. You know, he emphasized signs and wonders in the 1980s and 90s. He died of cancer when he was 61. And uh, I remember reading the last interview with him uh, just before he died. He was sitting in a wheelchair, and he said, I must have hurt a lot of Christians with what I taught about suffering. I do believe that God heals, he said, but I fail to realize that sometimes actually our testimony is stronger in the midst of adversity. And uh, he said, um, I've come to realize in the midst of my own cancer and suffering, this is what he said, quote, that the stars shine brightest in the desert. None of us wants adversity or difficulty, but often that's when our testimony is most brilliantly strong and clear. So, God working sovereignly behind the scenes is how doors are often opened, and working together with the sovereignty of God, we have to demonstrate courage in our Christian testimony and witness. So often, God does open a door of opportunity for us to speak to parents or family or neighbors. Or He does issue a call to consider leaving all and going to the ends of the earth. But sometimes we just lack the courage to respond when He opens the door for us. So that's why it's very important not just to see that God sovereignly opens doors, but then Paul goes on to say, Pray that I may proclaim these words to outsiders, making the most of every opportunity, speaking full with language or conversation that's full of grace, seasoned with salt, so you may know how to answer everyone's questions. So there's a duality here between God's sovereign opening up of the doors and Paul, and then he is exhorting these believers to seize the opportunities to speak to those who are around him. Let me just give you a couple of illustrations of this uh, before I close, one from the student world and one from graduates. I once visited uh, Peru. It was a very dangerous situation in the early 1990s when um, there was a guerrilla movement called Sendero Luminoso. They were targeting Christian pastors. Actually, they killed 300. It was a very dangerous situation, and... um, the week I was there, we were in a conference high up in the Andes, and uh, they kidnapped two local pastors, and they shot the local mayor because there, uh, there was an election going on. It was very tricky. It wasn't long after we'd lost our daughter. So I remember praying, Lord, please preserve my life. It might be too much for my wife and son if I am lost also. Then I met a young student in the conference. She wasn't one of the leaders. Her name was Amelia. Amelia. And she said to me, what do you think of studying sociology? I said, it's a good subject. Why do you ask? She said, that's what I'm studying in the local university. And she said, many of the students studying sociology with me are members of this guerrilla movement. And she said, the professor of philosophy there is the leader. She said, when I became a Christian three years ago, they were really targeting Christians. And she said, they even put a list up on the student union, no disport of the people they were going to kill in the university. And as they kill them, they tick them off one by one. She said, the Christian brothers knew them. they went up to them and said stop killing these people and they said keep quiet or we'll kill you too she said I was very frightened so she said I said nothing about my newfound faith for two and a half years then six months ago I asked myself a question, it was this is the gospel true because I reasoned if it's true it's worth living for and it's worth dying for, she said I didn't ask myself the question, does it make me feel good, because I knew that wouldn't be enough to face them down And to speak courageously. So she said, after a period of of careful reflection, I came to the settled conclusion the gospel is defensible, it's true, there are answers to the big questions in life, so counting the cost, I've spoken openly of Christ courageously. I was really rebuked by her because she was 22. She wasn't even leading a small group Bible study in her university, but I was challenged by the courage of her testimony. And I believe we don't face a situation like that. Often the antagonism we face is just from cynicism or snide comments. But we too are called to be courageous based on a conviction that the gospel is true. And if we're not certain of that, we need to come to that settled conviction. Because that's what really fires the imagination and fires the testimony The conviction, the gospel, is the truth of all truths, is the greatest message in the history of the world, and I must speak it and live in the light of it because there is nothing greater that has ever been given in the history of men and women. The truth of the gospel. That's what fires our courage. Last illustration because my time has come to a close. But from the graduate world, because I think it's very important that many people never become Christian ministers... Pastors, uh, vicars, or curates. Many of us are in the working world, and our calling is to be courageous in the working world in speaking and living for Christ. I remember being at a conference in East Asia, and uh, one man got up to give his test, and he was an engineer, actually. He'd studied in Australia where he did a doctorate, and he returned to Indonesia where he was given a senior position very quickly and asked by the government to decide who should provide electricity for one of the larger islands in Indonesia so he put it out for tender he received four offers the largest one came with a big bribe turned it down they came back with an increased bribe offer turned it down a second time then they came back a third time and they said we know who your boss is if you don't take the bribe we'll concoct a story about you and get you fired still turned it down and they came back a final time They said, we followed you home. We know you have a a wife and a small child. If you don't take the bribe, we'll harm your family. He was very worried, so his name was Ruli. He went to see his wife and uh, talked to his wife about it and one of the elders in the church. And he said, what do you think I should do? I don't want my family to be at risk. And his wife said to him, you know what really attracted me to you in the first place? It wasn't your looks, though you are good-looking. It was your integrity if you give that up now, you'll never get it back, and you lose the best thing about you. I want you to go back there and refuse the bribe, counting the cost. So he went back to the two guys who offered the bribe. They said, what are you going to do? And he said, I didn't plan to say this, but he said, the words just came out of my mouth. I said, I can't take your bribe because my life has already been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you can give me something worth more than that, I'll take it. He shared this in a conference with 800 students, many of whom started leaping up on their desks and the tables and shouting and screaming and cheering. And I said to one of them, why are you shouting and screaming? They said, because someone has stood against corruption and he's not even an extrovert. He's like the rest of us. So we can do it too. Courageous. Shining star in the midst of a corrupt And an evil world. So that's the combination of how God opens doors, opens doors of opportunity for the advance of the gospel, and opens doors to infuse other believers with courage to stand themselves when God, in His sovereignty, acts in changing political circumstances to open doors, as He may be doing at the moment in Europe. And in the UK, in the midst of the economic downturn, we're seeing many more people come to evangelistic meetings in the universities than we have probably for 20, 30 years in UK missions, as I mentioned in Oxford last week, Canterbury the week before, Cardiff a few weeks before that. Large numbers turning up because they see humanism has abjectly failed, and there must be an alternative. Maybe God is opening doors sovereignly at the moment. There's still a lot of hedonism, still a lot of resistance and apathy but maybe something is stirring. God's sovereign intervention, but then our courage, our calling is not to give in to weakness. We need men and women of conviction who will stand firm, who will determine not just to warm a pew, but to seek to live and speak for Christ, to be a witness, to be a testimony, to be a shining star in our neighborhoods, and for some of us to obey the call to take this gospel to the ends of the earth. That's how God opens doors through His sovereign activity and through the courageous response of His people. May God give us grace to exercise courage ourselves wherever He places us, in Sheffield and in some cases in the workplace or in some cases in other parts of the world. Let me just pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that there were shining stars in Scripture and those people around us today. We thank you that you are just as much at work in our day and generation as you were in the times when Scripture was written and when the early church came into existence. Oh, living God of heaven, open doors around the world to people, groups who have not heard the name of Christ Open doors in our neighborhood. Open doors of opportunities for the missionaries who have gone out from this church to serve you with diligence and wholeheartedness. And then, O God, give these people and give us courage to live and speak for Christ. Deliver us from apathy and help us to courageously, albeit gently, but clearly, when you clearly open the door to us, to speak of Christ to those who round us, for in his name we ask it.